Mark. All right. All right. Hopefully that'll work out. Um, actually, Tamron, do you need to like open your window or close your window or something? Does that need to happen? <laughs> no, no, I'll do that after you start talking for the gag. Okay, in that case, I'll proceed with the intro. Okay, uh, cool. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode three of Vecna's Goon Squad with uh, myself, Acid Shill, uh, Tamron Vasilio, and uh, today, today our guest is uh, the the man, the myth, the legends, uh, Prince Vogelfrey, who uh, I believe also goes by. Uh, let me find this. Prince Taivaliluntu. Is that is that correct pronunciation? Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that... correct. I well, I don't know about the second. Uh, I think it's it's Vogel free, and then uh, on the second one, I have no idea. Uh, Morris sort of cursed me with a Finnish oh, is that, name. Is that Finnish? Yeah, that's Finnish. And so I have a Finnish name until I've learned enough about Finnish uh, culture. Until you're uh, finished with that. <laughs> the... I think I need to like say something about this because I think people are following me because they think I'm I'm Fido or get I'm like getting more followers from <laughs> those countries. Well, I there was there was a guy on Twitter a while back who his like he said his location to Kalmykia, and I DM'd him or I think I I commented to him like can you can you tell me some more stuff about Kalmykia like I've never I've never heard of anyone who's from there and he's like oh no I don't actually live there I just set my <laughs> my location to random parts of like the Eurasian steppe, and so that was a huge disappointment for me. Yeah. So Vogelfrey, tell me tell me a little bit about yourself because I've. Um, you know, I've 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 seen seen you around on Twitter. Um, you you've said you said a few interesting things that that, that I find find interesting. <laughs> but I don't. You know, I feel I feel like I'm not incredibly familiar with with you as a person. So I don't tell tell me about yourself. I want to know about you. You seem interesting. Cool. Uh, I don't really know where to start because I do I think less normal stuff than most people. Maybe a good place to uh, Just start tell is... me what you find important. What, yeah. Just, just tell uh, me what you enjoy, what you want what to is, tell me. What is most important to you? Exactly. Well, to see my enemies driven before me, to hear the lamentations of their women, that sort of thing, you know? I like it. Who are I your like enemies? It. What enemies do you have? Uh, uh, legalists, right? I, I really dislike legalism, <laughs> the, the Chinese philosophy from the first... Would you say Chin Chin Empire? I'm not really sure on the pronunciation. Um, is is that the one where they're just like you should follow the law? Uh, they're like it, it, they're sort of like you you should follow the law and like the law is just power and sort of is legitimized solely through itself and not through any connection to goodness. Um, they think rulers should kind of abstract themselves from society to the maximum degree possible. And so they're like hyper authoritarian. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't help but notice you've got these people who believe that the correct thing to do is to obey power, which justifies itself. And your response to that is that you want to essentially gain and exercise power to drive them before you and hear the lamentations of their women. Uh, is that, so is that in a sense two, giving them a taste of their own medicine? Two different forms of power. Um, there's there's power is domination. There's power is having power over, and then there's power and all the freeness of its other forms of expression. I don't want to 
control their lives on an ongoing basis. It sounds like too much work. I just want uh, to have these people who no longer exist as an extant political philosophy to like be defeated. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Now we no, just but they are in fact gone. Well, you know, the Communist Party's here, and they definitely have some legalist <laughs> roots in terms of their philosophy in China. Um, so maybe not so much. Um, All right. So so how's how's that crusade going against China then, or the, the Communist Party? The, the Communist Party. I, I love China. I love Confucius, but but yeah. Uh, but the Communist Party, mm, yeah, I have some issues with that. <laughs> I mean, that's perfectly well, like understandable. Most of us do. <laughs> I, frankly, I'm rather surprised when people don't have issues with the Chinese Communist Party, but apparently those people do exist. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a little... Maybe a lot of them, right? I'm not sure mm-hmm. how many, sort of ultimately, but I would say mm-hmm. at, at least 100 million, probably as many as 500 million you know, it's sort of hard to get <laughs> accurate internal polling, obviously, but. Yeah, I don't. I, I, okay, well, I, I think I can understand pretty easily why, like, somebody living in China would be very, very favorable of the of their state. Because obviously they're, they're kind of, they're exposed to the, uh, I hate to say, you know, kind of propaganda machine of, the CCP, um, there's kind of the idea of China can do no wrong, the government can do no wrong. But what surprises me even more is people who live in like the Western world who end up going to the same ex- extent of like, you know, that the Communist Party can do no wrong. Those 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 people are even from right wing circles. There's been a, a, an amount of like, oh, look at how hyper efficient this government is, and I, ugh, I really hate that stuff. Yeah, but yeah, no, no, that's it's... that crusade is not is not really the thing that I find most important. Um, I would say like religion and spirituality, um, self improvement, and and yet like politics, but a politics that's like more focused on people actually being together rather than like the politics of oh, okay. law, um, so to speak. So when you say self improvement, could you elaborate on that? Because I I myself. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a big, big fan of self-improvement. <laughs> I think I think that even I think that's even in my Twitter bio. It is. Yeah, I, I looked at it. I went and I'm like, I should remind myself of <laughs> this this person. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I the thing that that most strongly brings to mind for me is like introspection, um, particularly Gendlin's focusing, which is the best introduction to. Um, to introspection, but really the, the whole the whole gambit, you know, uh, becoming more virtuous. That's good. I think almost everyone is a fan of that. Okay. okay. I think virtue means a lot of different things yeah. to different people, though. There, there's um, there's a lot of what what kind of virtue are you are you striving for right now? There there are a lot of different archetypes one can try to slot themselves into, try to fulfill. What uh, what archetype are you striving for? I don't don't, or don't are you, you making know, your own place place him in your in your own model there. <laughs> well, well uh, you know, I would you, like this is a model free space. More princely, more princely would be good. Mm-hmm. I okay. I like noble as a vibe. 
and would like to trend in that direction. Okay. I can respect that. I can I can I can certainly certainly pick up pick up a little bit on that, on that vibe. Uh I guess I kind of understand that, but I feel like it's not playful enough for me. Uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like uh, your your archetypical, you know, wise and generous noble. He doesn't just he doesn't fuck around as much as he should. Uh, well, I think it depends. It's all you know, time and place, right? Yeah, you know, put that wise and generous prince in like. Um, a big banquet hall with like a bunch of, of ale that man's gonna be up <laughs> on tables you know singing along with his uh with his brave warriors you know what i mean perhaps you should uh read the three musketeers they're noble in their ethos and they fuck around a lot <laughs> yeah, i don't read books though that's my thing i don't oh, yeah. do it Wait, what do you mean you don't read books I mean, I do read books. I just don't. I don't read very often, and I, what, I never, I never, I never fucking read book, books. And people tell me to read. <laughs> like, if someone's like, "Oh, you should read this book. It's really good." I'm like, "Okay, I'll put it in my reading list, so then I'll never think it about again." And then I'll end up reading some <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. random ass shit I find. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. Um, Vogelfrey, uh, you recently you've been you've been traveling around the american south uh hiking and and hitchhiking and whatever the hell you're doing can you tell us some more about that yeah so i am no longer traveling i'm now living in Asheville with a twitter mutual that i met um uh the vadra vibe you might have seen him around um but for a little while i was hiking i started hiking up from uh atlanta uh and walked kind of into the Appalachian area. Uh, you know, just like with a backpack, camping in the woods, mostly walked alongside really the cool. train train track, and then kind of hitchhiked the rest of my way into Asheville, which was kind of just a destination I, I chose at random after someone was like, Asheville is really cool. And then I came, and it is really cool. So was it was it originally your plan? Was it originally your plan to go to Asheville, or did you just like come to town, like meet this guy, fall in love, decide to settle down? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was not originally my plan to to move to Asheville. Um, I was thinking of of like traveling more after Asheville, but with like I was gonna go to New Orleans next, but with like the spike in coronavirus cases and all of this kind of thing. Uh, I didn't really want to walk around in the dead of winter, like that's less fun. Uh, so I decided to just hang in, in Asheville for the time being and just sort of get a really s- sweet deal on my my rent is is half of what it was in Austin, and I'm in a five bedroom house with two people in it, and like that's just ah uh, the space is awesome. wonderful. That there's so much space. That's not it's amazing. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm sitting in in the dedicated like Zoom meeting room with like Buddhist like paintings on the wall incense <laughs> holder uh uh you, you know next to me yeah it's it's great it's fantastic man i want to 
that sounds like somewhere I'd totally love to chill. That would be awesome. That, that sounds great. Yeah, that's that's kind of the plan. Is we're gonna set up like guest bedrooms and eventually just like get Twitter mutuals to come down and hang out with us. That's how we're gonna awesome. use use our space. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool, man. So did you did you learn anything significant about life, yourself, people? While backpacking the, um, along along these tra- railroad tracks, do you have any sort of revelations? I think I, I learned I about during that. Well, the first really interesting thing that happened um, mm-hmm. on my journey was that I saw a, a albino um, deer. Oh, yeah, that's a very good omen. Um, and then in terms of lessons probably the the main one is something about consistency i've never been the most consistent person like in the world um but something about just picking an activity that i could do reliably which was you know walking and backpacking and doing a lot of it it like I don't know, it like pushed consistency into my bones in a good way. Not fully, but it's just sort of like, it it, it increased my willpower, basically. It's just like easier for me to work for extended periods of time on like generic tasks. Yeah, I absolutely know what you're talking about. Uh, That's really cool. That that last little revelation is something I've been, um, I, I have experienced in the past year quite a bit. Um, and it's it's brought me much joy to see it uh, come. I don't know, reap its reap its fruits. So it seeds. I don't think I don't, that's how it works. That is. <laughs> I think you're either reaping it or you're. I reap what it sow. So or you're you, enjoying you, the fruits. Maybe you, I, you pick your fruits. I guess. Do you harvest yeah. fruits? I guess, but yeah, you do. You I like think, reap yeah, grain. Yeah, you do. Uh. You, you, yeah, don't, you don't yeah, reap because that's like with a scythe, right? That's that's what yeah. reaping. Well, I mean, is, you I could think. do that with fruits, right? That's true. Cut in half, right? Well, they're up there. It sounds like fun. Yeah, are you kidding me? Now that I think that would be really cool. Is like a could you imagine that as like an Olympic sport? Just take a bunch of scythes and cut a bunch of like pomegranates down. That'd be yeah. Terrible. That was an iPhone app for a while. It's called Fruit Ninja. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pomegranates they're really messy have you ever Vogelfrey have you ever experienced the the incredibly <laughs> dismaying mess of pomegranates Shell knows exactly what I'm talking about he, he knows uh, it, we've had some mutual experiences but do, do, do you know how messy pomegranates can be I lo- like pomegranates, but I think I've never experienced this particular. All right, do you mind if I go error. on a little story? Story here. Please <laughs> tell us about your pomegranate All mess. Right. All right, so this was we're gonna we're gonna click the rewind button. I'm gonna flashback. Maybe I don't I don't know how many years, but it was, it was like it was it was high school. Maybe like eleventh grade. Maybe tenth. I'm not. I don't. I don't really remember. It was it was a while ago. Um. We had we, were, we had a bunch of people together playing D anD D. Shu was there. I was there. We I had, don't think I was there for this. No, no, 
I could have sworn you were. Uh, maybe. I don't remember it. I think it, I think it was one of the first Strahd sessions that this happened because it was like ten uh. people. There. <laughs> it might have been. It might have been. Right. So there were there were a bunch of there, there, there were some girls there as well. Um, now they they were a little less interested in D and D than the guys. There was a lot more desire to just hang out, chill with friends. A lot of them were there because they were other people's girlfriends. That's not important at the time. They they were all cool people, right? No no judgment towards them. They were all my friends. Um, they did, however, get bored. So they went out into my backyard, and they found a pomegranate tree, which I didn't even know I had, right? And they took all these pomegranates, and they decided to eat them on my driveway, on my back driveway. And it turns out that those that pomegranate juice stains, uh, <laughs> like, the, the concrete down there, like, indefinitely. So they just, I mean, they, there was just a huge purple stain of pomegranate juice there for almost a year. It just didn't come off, no matter how much scrubbing I tried. It was just there permanently. And they just <laughs> ate and ate and ate. They, they did it for like half an hour. They just ate all the pomegranates on that tree. You've given <laughs> yeah, me a new way of... Stupid. of- Lowering property values, if that's ever something they need to do. (laughs) This reminds me of the time that I burned uh, my parents' driveway with black powder. (laughs) And probably to to this day, there's still a a black powder burn mark burned into that pavement. Cobblestone. It just adds character. It's like a patina. Exactly. An old car. Yeah, my um, in my room in my parents' house, there's still some random burn marks around the um. I have. <laughs> I remember I had some in my uh, probably like eighth or ninth grade. I wanted to. I was in the my bathroom and I wanted to see what would happen if I lit a tissue on fire. Um, I don't. I don't know what I was thinking, but that was a really interesting idea at the time. So I lit it on fire and it. It just started burning, like, really uncontrollably. So I, so I threw it in the toilet, um, but it, it didn't stop, so it burned. And there's a plastic, um, you know, toilet seat. It has, like, melted half of it. So oh, if no. You, if you pick it up, it's, like, all burned and charred. The first, the first time I went to Tamarin's house years and years ago, uh, he was showing me, he had like all these lighters on his nightstand like probably like seven or eight lighters and he's showing me like oh yeah i have all these lighters just flicks them on and off like habitually um Mm -hmm. yeah 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 that was a combination of me really liking lighters and just mega add (laughs) (laughs) needing something to do with my hands that's understandable honestly it was probably for the best that i never owned a lighter uh, until recently Lighters are a fantastic way of, of fidgeting. Um, in fact, you know, I, I was on Kersey's talk show recently and uh, mm-hmm. was fidgeting with a lighter. And then most recently in this D&D session, that's one of the features of this meeting room is that there's, you know, a lighter right here for the <laughs> incense. And it's oh, great. Man, it's you, that. you just pick it up and it, it makes the satisfying noise and then you have fire. Is that a Bic lighter? And yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I'm not sure how to feel about the fact that I know him by sound. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. I think that that proves your dedication to, to a form of art. You, know? you are a, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. a, a critic, that way. a man of taste. <laughs> I'm just imagining like Anton Ego from Ratatouille he walks into like a lighter shop and he starts flicking all these lighters and he's like <laughs> ah yes a fine Zippo <laughs> and there's like he, he flicks open this lighter and it's like the perfect lighter and it shows a flashback to his boyhood days of lighting a tissue on fire and throwing it in the toilet <laughs> <laughs> so Vogelfrey, you um, you said you played D and D. You you went to a D and D session. Yeah, he's in my yeah. campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Oh I mean. yeah. That's, oh, sh- Damn, that's <laughs> we're like D and D. We're like D and D cousins. Idiot. We're in the same D and D server. <laughs> you know, there's D and D familial no. overlap. So I. Forgive me, I knew that. That was that that, that was one degree of D and D separation. That was just me forgetting entirely. <laughs> Alright. So so I'm interested to see what your answer is to, to this. What um what value do you find in D and D? Hmm. It's like you get to do shit, you know? <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. you get to do hijinks uh you get to try your best to embody a character that is maybe not how, how you normally get to be it's like a little impro a little strategy and like a little sort of like wild kind of group storytelling all all wrapped up into a bit of a escapist fantasy you know okay okay now Do you, do, you, do you think there's any sort of like inherent good, or maybe maybe that's a better a better way of of, of phrasing it? Do you, do you think do you think that this is like valuable, right? In general, playing D and D. Do you think this is a, a good? This is actually in Dungeons and Dragons D&D? is the summum bonum. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I, I think. What, what it, I'm, it's like I'm, I'm not I'm not sure what you're asking. It's like does it increase people's virtue on average? Like, is it an art form? Like, I, I'd say it's probably an, an art form. Like, mm. I think it's being you can be good at Ooh. like storytelling and and being a character. No, so, no, so you've just you've just asked an interesting question. Uh, you you just posed something that, that that's interesting. Are people's like moral worth and is 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 morality based on for you? Uh, virtue of of a person. Are you are you a virtue ethics kind of guy? I have sympathies with virtue ethics. Okay. Uh, it, it, <laughs> it, it, don't worry about it. That's that's not a bad thing. <laughs> virtue ethics is is more useful at least than both deontology and utilitarianism. Although I don't know that it like strictly describes the uh, ground of goodness. I think I think that's that's to an extent the answer that that, that I was looking for right there. 
Congratulations, you got the correct answer. You get one point. <laughs> well, 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 there wasn't a correct answer, but you know, you know. What, Didn't know this was a game show. Shit. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, what's uh, what's the prize if he wins? Uh, uh, I've got two half-eaten cookies sitting next to me. Ooh. You can have one of them. Wow. You have to come get it though. That's pretty generous. He doesn't usually offer that. Uh, where? <laughs> what region of the country are you in? I'm in Los Angeles. Ah, well, I have a friend Although in I'm Los mo- Angeles. I'm thinking about. I'm, mo- I'm moving to New York sometime soon. Oh, that's so, exciting. Um, yes, you can you can come come and get it there. I'm going back to college. Finally, getting out of here. Oh, what? Uh, what are you studying? Mechanical engineering. I well, I'm, I'm also dueling in philosophy. Oh, I, uh, nice dueling. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you get a, a dueling a practical... and philosophy. Triple, <laughs> triple majoring. <laughs> I mean, that would be amazing. I would just, I would fall Man. in love with you instantaneously if that was true. Just like, I'm gonna look it up. Swoon. Is there a dueling major? I doubt it. I know that MIT has yeah, I mean, has, obviously. Piracy, has has like a piracy like certification. That's okay, that is such fucking bullshit. What kind of pirate gets a fucking certification? Kind of yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm incredibly skeptical. Pussy ass bullshit okay. pirate. Okay, MIT. Okay, privateer. They're clearly a privateer. You know, government sponsored and all of that. They're not a real privateer. Congress what doesn't a- issue letters of mark anymore. They should, but they don't. So you can't be a privateer <laughs> anymore. Ah. Uh, Return, man. Return. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Some that's people... it. Maybe MIT is secretly a part of like uh, an organization to try to reissue Letter of Marx. Maybe that's why they have this. Yeah, let's, it's like a little political protest. Let's return to the traditional values of state-sponsored piracy. I am 100% on board. <laughs> where have our family values gone? Why can't anybody... That's where it all went wrong. That's when it all, all went wrong. <laughs> If a man can't get the smell of his sea, a sm- smell of the sea, <laughs> and the wind in his galleon, what does a man truly have? Yeah, America peaked in 1812. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> so, um, Prince Vogelfrey, what's your favorite state of the United States? <laughs> What's my favorite state of the United States? That's a great question. Let me think for a moment as I ponder their true worth. Okay. I feel like best state debates are like best girl debates. You know? Well, yeah, very much so. No, 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 no. Not at all. This is this is best for you, by the way. Right? This isn't you don't you don't have to answer this objectively. I mean, like what what state appeals to you by far the most? What 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 gives you a longing? in your heart of hearts to live there, right? Like Robert E. Lee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I used to live in Seattle and Washington Mm. state is just gorgeous and it's really nice up there. And that's probably the only separatist movement I would even like consider fighting for. So that's a a good answer. Uh, You know, I can respect that. That's yeah. For me, it's either, it's either Washington or New Hampshire. Uh, every time I've been in Washington, which hasn't been much, but it has been a few times, um, I've just adored it. The the people there, the very relaxed vibe, the beautiful landscape. It's just, it's great, A. 
Yeah, it's wonderful. I would like to move back to Seattle someday if if it you know is like not on fire. <laughs> Hopefully. So um, so Prince Vogelfred, what's your what what nation makes the best pizza? Oh my what? god! <laughs> what nation makes the best pizza? Uh, <laughs> she'll knows where I'm going with this. Are, are you planning on having this discussion every single podcast we do? Well, if we started it, we might as well continue it. Um, so here's my theory. My theory is that America makes the best pizza. The reason being that we attract the best talent. So there's going to be a difference between the average pizza and the peak pizza. And I think that the peak pizza is probably made in either America or, to be honest, Japan. Just because there's probably some Japanese guy who has dedicated himself to the art of pizza making. <laughs> <laughs> so th- those are my two theories. Okay, interesting. Jiro dreams of pizza. You, you've, you've taken a very analytical approach to this, and I really like that. Okay. I think that he's. I think he's probably right about that. Probably the best food, like on a peak basis, probably all of it is in Japan. Mm-hmm. Just because they're so autistic. <laughs> I mean, America attracts a lot of very driven people, so I think it's possible yeah. that some of the best, you know, French and even Japanese and just etc. Like chefs are are here in the states. Oh, absolutely! Who yeah, the, the, trained the and then came came here. Yeah, the appeal, like the land of opportunity. And it was probably an e- Elon Musk of chefness or something like that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well. My answer is a little different, and I think I think you should try this out. Have you ever had Swedish pizza? Tell me what it is. What distinguishes yeah. it? So let, me, let me send you a little, little picture picture right here. Oh man! I will I tell you, I don't you. Put really like chat. fish. So okay, don't worry. There's no fish on here. Only banana. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's in the, it's in the group chat right there. I see. That right there, it's, it's brilliant. You know, you, got, you know you what I, ham I think is that some Bernays sauce. Hmm? We need to bring back the Crusades to burn <laughs> heretics at the stake. The, okay. We need to restore okay. a sense of purity to our world in general. Um, you know, I, I think that this this is truly degenerate. <laughs> this is what happens when you don't respect the, the traditional forms. This this proves that the slippery slope is not a fallacy. It's like you make one modification to pizza, and the next thing you know, every possible modification to pizza. Man, is... why does everybody say that? I actually don't think it's that objectionable. And honestly, I well, will try some with you at some point. Yeah. Okay, so I agree. It's like not... The thing that I think I would hate is like the texture. I think the, like the texture of banana on pizza what do you is. Mean? Oh um, no 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 no! It's great because it's fried. I mean, it's, right? I think it's as like long as you take crunchy banana strings on the out. No 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 no! It's like. No, not it's not it's not crunchy at all. It just goes. There's, the, the there's there's a a little bit of like how do I say it? Fuck, I don't know. Is it's it like anything the, like fried like, plantains? Never had those. It's like banana, but without the sting. You know, like without the twang to it. 
it's just it just goes down and provides that sweet savory feeling and that with the Bernays sauce along with it anyhow um, if you're ever in Los Angeles uh, Viking pizza the way to go I'm gonna well I'll, I'll warn you I'll There's, try there, I, there, I know I know one person who's enjoyed Swedish pizza aside from a, a Swedish person um, and then they've been famous for enjoying really wacky foods uh, everybody else that? has hated it uh, Ava. Oh, of course. Uh, well, I don't know if she actually liked it. We were dating at the time, so it's possible she just said it. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I don't trust Scandinavian sensibilities around food. They they ferment sharks. <laughs> Did you know this? Did you know that they ferment sharks? No, they don't. What? Yeah, dude. No, they actually... Look it up. Look what? up fermented shark. Do it right now. Am I about to learn something about my own culture? Oh, this is in Iceland. I think that there's other versions too, but uh, but it is at least in Iceland, yes. The meat of the Greenland shark is poisonous. Whoa, what the? Dude, <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, it's, it's nuts. So, Sweden, Sweden has a similar thing. Um, I don't, I don't know if I've, uh, if if I've explained this at all, but I'm I'm from Sweden initially, I was born there, um, and they have uh, fuck it, it's something it's some, Sweden born and raised. Spent all my it's day. some small fish that they just like shove into like like a sardine can and they just like seal it up and let it ferment for like months, and by the end of it, it's like. It's like almost bursting, right? Like it's the the metal is like it's like it's like if you have a soda can that you shook and shaked for like two two days straight, um, and then when you open it, God, it's like the entire block can can like actually smell it. So you got to give out a, a a nuclear bomb warning, get everybody to take a step back. Um, I feel like this so is some what of the, some happens. of the food in Sweden is pretty weird. This is what happens when you have all of that Viking energy, and then you like have to blow it up <laughs> inside of you. It just becomes weird, weird stuff like this. Oh yeah, no, there's there's a bunch of weird stuff going on in there. I completely agree. <laughs> it, it certainly does give Sweden its own little. Uh... <laughs> its own little charm to it. So I mean, so how, how do those you... are Danish though? You got to give them credit for that. What, what was the first bit? I didn't. Hear. Legos. Legos are oh, Danish. Yeah. I mean, I that's pretty know. awesome, isn't well, I mean, it? The, okay. No, I mean the Danish weren't really. The Danish were kind of the the most tame of the Vikings, right? The 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 further north you went, the more weird they became. Like the Norwegians, they were just raiding constantly. The Danish, they would go on like. On, on, on like actually military campaigns and the Swedes would alternate between like trading and raiding but it was mainly right the Danish wouldn't do like those those weird ass raids they would do a little more organized stuff they don't you know I don't know actually I have no awareness of Scandinavian okay. history it's, it's there's, there's this one something. guy well there, there, mm-hmm. so you, you probably know who Harold Hardrada is, is that how you say his name? Um, 
Good question. But I, I, I heard don't. this. So th- this was the guy who I believe invaded England right before William the Conqueror, and he he lost. But before he was like king of Norway, um, mm-hmm. he was in the Varangian Guard, who were the Norse guardsmen to the Byzantine um, emperor. Because the Byzantines had oh, these yes. very like, but uh, you know, <laughs> fractious politics, so they would hire people <laughs> externally, so you would kind of know that they were loyal and and not. Yeah, entangled in someone else's web of power. Um, so when like the current king of Norway dies, he wants to leave to go claim the throne, and the Byzantine emperor is like, "No, you can't leave." Um, and he's like, "Fuck you, I'm gonna leave." And there's this chain that goes across like the mouth of the port in Byzantium that is meant to keep ships from getting like in or out without the permission of the government. Um, and they, the story goes, uh, don't know if this is true, but the story goes that they, they flipped their ships upside down to get uh, through the chain. So it's like they, they had to get under the chain. And so they all sort of bailed overboard when their ship had momentum and flipped it. And then the log ship went under the chain because they'd flipped it, you know, over. And then they righted it and, like, escaped. <laughs> and apparently they like they lost like two out of three ships doing this, but like Harold Hardrada like made it through. And yeah, that's nuts. That's I want to do that. I want to I want to like live that, a life where that's more of an option, you know. God, I really I really hope that's something that's true. No, I would I, say I totally understand what you mean. That that yeah, right it's, there it's seems like, very appealing. Those high chains. It's not outside of the realm of possibility. I mean, cr- crazy shit happens yeah. in the street all of the time. Just, like, totally wild. I do always find it incredibly entertaining that there have been two defenestrations of progs. That's, uh, oh, yeah. That's one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> I think there should be a third. That's my ideology. Ooh. I can get two behind that. Yeah, who are, who are we defenestrating and why? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't really know who you would defenestrate these days. Like maybe like someone from the EU? Question mark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 I guess I like that. Prague is Prague is part of the like. Poland Czech has Republic. this like oh, well yeah, but I think the Czech Republic is part of some alliance structure between like Hungary, Poland. Like the Czechs and the Visegrad group, yeah, that's the one. The Visegrad group. I think they're part of the Visegrad yeah. group. So maybe the maybe it's like the de- defenestration is like EU what? versus Visegrad. Okay, oh, thanks. Okay. I can I can dig that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's get it. Let's make it happen. Have you guys seen the the? Uh, I knew the, you guys would bond. I knew you guys P, would get along just great. The 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 PLO one. This is like. They're not actually building this tank, unfortunately, at least as far as I know, but it is the, it's it's sort of this, like, Polish home-built concept tank, and it's just the prettiest tank I've ever seen. I really want it to go into Ooh. mass production, because it is, it is just absolutely no, yeah, gorgeous. I'm it. People should look this, this stuff up. Yeah, this it looks just looks like, like some, like... A, yes, almost like a near sci-fi. This looks like thing. something from Halo. Yeah, basically, <laughs> yeah. Kind of does, yeah. Hmm. See, I'm almost. I mean, I'm sure they've do, that they've designed this very well, but for some reason, whenever I look at like this kind of military gear, 
Whenever I see something like too sleek and good looking, it just feels like it's gonna go wrong. Like because they've yeah. taken away all the all the maintenance access and you know like mm. ugly points of in, of entry. I feel like once things go wrong, it's just gonna break. Right? Like, could you imagine having to go under those treads and like get something that's stuck in those wheels? That right there would be hell. Yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah, I definitely think about you know. I heard some story, I think it was from Iraq, where, like, apparently, with the way the modern treads ended up working, they got, like, their tanks got paralyzed by just, like, barbed wire strung low across the ground, and they had to actually blow them up, because, like, the treads were just permanently fucked, so they just, like, had to pull their people out and blow up, you know, these, like, million-dollar pieces of, I mean, (laughs) ten million-dollar pieces of... Wait, American tanks? Yeah, American tanks. Oh, oh that, now that sounds like the army to me. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, counter yeah. To, to modern tanks, potentially. Maybe they've solved this problem. But in case you're oh, ever boy. running an urban guerrilla insurgency, get yourself some barbed wire. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that's really how... I'm not sure. <laughs> pretty sure tanks were invented... In, in part to just go over the barbed wire. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was like extra thin or something. Or like tanks have just like <laughs> sort of like out-evolved their original purpose and someone didn't think You're about right. the right thing sort of in in response to that. And I think... Like, have you guys, have you guys seen the tank alignment really, chart? Yes. The what? I think warfare would be really cool if we went back to how World War One is. You know, I feel like that's a bit more of a based situation. Why would trenches. you say this? What do you mean? Wait, what, what do you mean? It's it's way less. Like World War One is less interesting than World War Two. Like, World no, no, War Two no, no, is you kidding me. It's like it... no, 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 no. I feel like right, like the the idea of of summary executions. That right there is. It adds some flavor to the war, right? Like now, nowadays, you, you, there's no, there's like no worry about friendly fire. I feel like we got to fix that, you know. What do you mean? What are you on about? Have you read about Vietnam? (laughs) Yeah. So I think I think even in I think even in modern I think even in like Iraq, a lot of casualties are are still caused by friendly fire. Like yeah, I mean, I heard it was a big problem in the Gulf War. Artillery is, I mean, it's just like a universal thing that artillery has a tendency to fall short. Yeah. um, Yeah. Or just miss its mark. Which is rather unfortunate, but there's like no fundamental way of, well, I mean, aside from, I don't know, better communications, no, you know, better training. It's not really that way of fixing it. I do like this tank alignment chart, though. It's 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 pretty solid. Yeah, all of our podcast listeners will just have to uh, imagine all of the images we're sharing in chat right now because they won't be able to see them. Um, yeah, you just got to look up tank alignment chart for sure. Yeah, so. You're on your own, listeners. <laughs> We're not going to help you. Googling take alignment chart. I mean, it's it's pretty, it's pretty obvious. It's pretty. Uh, what are we doing? I have questions here. Um, good, 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 good. good. Prince Vogelfrey, how do you feel about nationalism? How do I are feel you about nationalism? nationalism? Am I a nationalist? Yes. I feel like the answer is probably That's what I asked you. no. Or at least not exactly. Uh, I would say that I am patriotic, 
Um, but I think that the way nation states are set up right now is like bad. Like it's really quite terrible. Um, am I a nationalist? Uh, I would say that you should be able to. In fact, I had a tweet about this recently. Is it like if you can't feel nationalistic about a country that you have no special connection to, what is wrong with you? Like that was the tweet. Um, because I can feel. I don't know uh, what is wrong with me. <laughs> I can feel patriotic towards like just like pick a generic nation and I like listen to their propaganda and I'm like yeah like hell yes <laughs> like let's let's get whatever you know country going here like I you know uh, Israel is like particularly easy um, you just think about like their story and like all the stuff that went into that or or I mean really any country um, even. Yeah, just like you you get into their story and you empathize with it and you start to understand why people feel the way they do. And it's great. And then you can feel nationalistic about every country, which I think, I think that's the way to be. What? Nationalism for every country? What? No, no, no. no. I, well, that's not my ideal political structure because I would like people to be able to understand this sort of pluralistic feeling. Um, and then I think what comes out of that is would be like wildly different than, than what we have now. But um, but to feel uh, what it feels like to be intensely in favor of whatever given culture or society, like to be able to feel that for all of them is kind of the ideal for me anyway. Oh, okay. I see. So like a universal empathy kind of kind of shebang kind of deal in it yeah, yeah but no. in, in a way that includes you know when people say like universal love like universal empathy yeah. it's like some some hippie shit it, it, it's yeah, like no, no, you know of course pe- people who, who are like you know hippie I'm shit is good openness. though i mean yeah it, it i also empathize with that <laughs> um but it's just sort of like you know if you can't actually empathize with the position of someone whose beliefs or worldview is like a lot more extreme or even exclusionary in some sense, it's like you're not actually doing a very good job of like the thing. It's like I, I want to be able to get it on an emotional level. And by it, I mean like all of it, like communism, anarchism, fascism, whatever. My, my bio used to say ideology mixologist. Um, and that... That's like a, 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 a real thing of, of how I approach it um, or like approach thinking about politics and like spirituality also. Okay. That's, that, that's actually very interesting. Now, I think, for, forgive me, I want to I push in on okay. that a little bit more. Um, now, are you advocating for that to be a universal thing or are you advocating for that to be just you? Because I'm skeptical as to how achievable that is as a universal concept. <sighs> well, I think we're in a difficult state right now in the modern world where I think people by and large lack conviction. Um, I think even lots of people, lots of people pretend to have conviction, but I just like, don't believe them. Even like ISIS, I like, <laughs> I, it's like easy to dig into the stories of like hypocrisy and it being clear that the people are, you know, LARPing on an epic scale, but like still LARPing. Um, I think there's a, a massive lack of conviction in the modern world. Um, I think that this lack of conviction exists in part because people have been exposed to 
so many possibilities of like how to be. And when a way of being is like really rich or really clearly good, I think it like lodges in your mind. And then like, you know, like Zen samurai or whatever is just like lodged in your mind as like, that's a potentially good way of being. And then I think that kind of causes people to be like diffuse or unsure of themselves, which sometimes um, results in, act in acting in, in kind of a diffuse way. And sometimes results in a kind of like, masturbatory or like clenching attempts to return to a more concentrated way of being which is essentially like how i view view like fa fascism it's like you're like ah like there's too many ways of being like let's try really hard to just like forget about that and just do this one thing and i think that neither of those re really works ultimately um and so i think people are in this position where there's just too many like different ideals there's too many different aesthetics and they're overwhelmed by that, but there's no reversing that. There's just no reversing that like global awareness of all of the different ways people can live. And so the only way uh, like out is through, so to speak, is to try your best to merge what is best about all of the different ideologies and all of the different aesthetics until you can recapture some sense of conviction. Hmm. I... That's that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that. So. Oh man, I think that's that's so nonsense. Oh no. <laughs> that's. <laughs> oh boy. I, okay. Can you can you like elaborate like how does that work on on a psychological level like, oh no, I'm so confused. Do I want to be this or that or? I mean, I I don't understand how that would even work, like. Do people feel like they have to play a specific character in a story? Like they can't. Uh... Well, I, I, have a, I have a lot to say about this, but I have to run to the bathroom real, real quick first. So, all right, we can take a, a quick Go break. Ahead. All right, I'll be right back. Have your potty break. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the same thing then. Well, then I'll do get lunch then I guess. Okay, cool. We'll be back in just a sec. Okay. All right, I'm back. Hello. How you doing? <clears throat> Pretty good. Is uh, Acid here? No, he's not. But that's okay. I I thought of a question. <clears throat> Go for it. Asking. What's <clears throat> in recent memory? What's the movie you've had, you've seen, that's felt like the most meaningful? Right. I'm going to say a TV really show really instead. Okay. Uh, and that's The Young Pope, which I guess I'm watching for the third time now. Um, the Young Pope? Yeah. The Young Pope is a little like House of Cards, but in the papacy. And it's also a little not like House of Cards at all. Um, and has a lot of... It's a very interesting... Uh, work on what is both good and bad about Catholicism. Um, I have recommended this movie. Well, one of the ways I've recommended this movie is that if I ever became a Catholic, or sorry, TV show, um, it would be because of this TV show. Um, I don't think I'll ever become a Catholic, but like if I did, it would be because of the young Pope. Uh, it's a really fascinating, uh, really fascinating show.
So could you, I, I, now, now I'm just genuinely curious. What, what's so interesting about it? Um, well, I want to speak about it in really like generic terms. So, cause I, I, I don't see, know. you don't want to spoil, spoil anything. Spoil, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I see. <sighs> well, um, what is, I think in some sense, it's a very modern show. So like, there's lots of really interesting things in the show that like indicate how caught up with the times it is, so to speak. Like there's this scene where someone makes fun of someone for saying that they're from Harvard, right? Uh, mm -hmm. In in this sort of like like yeah. why why do you think the the specific line is so? There's a European who's like, oh, I went to Harvard. And then Jude Law, who is playing the young pope, is like later in their spiel, they say, like, don't sound so smug about saying you're from Harvard. To an American, it means only one thing, decline. <laughs> um, it's a, So it's a very modern show. It's a show that's very caught up on memetics. It's a show that I think will teach you about, like, like honestly, like propaganda and being compelling. Um, it's a show that will teach you about political Machiavellianism, sort of this house of cards thing. Will also be in a show that will teach you how to pray well, for example. Um, so it like hits all of these bases, um, which is a, a, sort of a fascinating range to have. Hmm. Okay. I might, I might, I might watch that. That actually sounds really interesting. Thank you for telling me about it. Yeah, I like it a lot. Highly recommend. Interesting. All right. So then I'm going to bring it back to reality a little bit. What have you done for the past few days? Done anything fun? What have I, done anything what significant? Have I, hmm. Yeah. What have you... Tell me about it. What's What's been going on? How's life been? Life's been all right. Uh, mostly living a relatively neat life. So, you know, reading a lot, messing around on Twitter a lot, that sort of thing. Um, I've been reading a, a Scandinavian webcomic called Stand Still, Stay Silent, which is equal parts wholesome and horror. Um, I've been rereading Thus Spoke Zarathustra for the nth time, uh, and I've been starting to get into uh, Being and Time by Heidegger. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine okay, reading okay. Heidegger. Couldn't be me. I, w I was talking to somebody. I, I talked talk to my good friend Sandra the, uh, the the other day. We went on, went on a hike, and not not really a hike, but a walk. And he um he didn't give me much specific, but he did specifics. But he did say that he was really enjoying reading Heidegger. It's it's something that's been on my list for a little while. I I have been finding it um pretty interesting and and pretty useful. Um, I wouldn't recommend anyone start there if they're sort of like not used to reading <laughs> philosophy definitely don't start there it it like takes some work to um figure out okay so what did you get from him well i'm not i'm not oh, done yeah. mind you okay uh but heidegger talks about um being this like fundamental sense of existence in a very interesting way heidegger has this very interesting concept of dyson and Dyson is essentially the, uh, I'm going to mangle this, but it's like the being that interprets being 
So it's it's the being that that comprehends existence or is fundamentally self-interpreting, and this is in his sense both what um, both what like people are and also what cultures are. So a culture will have an interpretation. Uh, so like Japan has an in- interpretation in itself of what it means to be Japanese. Um, and that is an example of, of Dyson, uh, uh, of these cultures that are, or, or like entities in the world that are fundamentally self-interpreting. Um, and he has these interesting things on, so he talks about how sort of um, Dyson misinterprets itself through its initial experiences in the world. So it's like, you don't kind of start with this self-consciousness. Instead, you start by interpreting your own consciousness through the early like realities that you experience. Um, and that that gives you a, you know, a limited perspective on what you truly are. Huh. Okay. Well, that doesn't I think make I any fucking along. sense. I think I followed along. I don't know if I'm qualified to speak on that, but that is very interesting. Um. What the? What the fuck? Wow. What? <laughs> just, just a lot of words. I've I've not dealt with philosophy for a while. Um. So it's just uh. I'm not. <laughs> It's difficult to snap back into the headspace of of uh, dealing with uh, with the, those those kind of concepts, uh, but I appreciate you telling me about those. Um, they're certainly interesting. It's something I will mull over, uh, but unfortunately, I'm not going to be give, going to be able to give you any sort of interesting response to that. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Shill, did you hit, uh, you uh, you said you had a bunch of questions? Um, I mean, I'm not like a, like an extraordinary amount of questions. I don't want you to you know get your expectations too high here, but I do I have some like like ten, fifteen, maybe thirty. Oh, I don't have time for that shit. Um, <laughs> Vogelfrey, do you believe in God? I do. Are we talking like a, like a, your traditional kind of religious god, guy in the sky? Are we talking like some kind of, you know, alternate interpretation, god as a metaphor, god as a, you know, some kind of weird philosophical shit? I believe that the traditional interpretation is that god is some weird philosophical shit. And that the god in the sky thing has been <laughs> misleading for a long time. I would point to... Uh, Moses and his encounter with the burning bush and the phrase, uh, I am that I am. And if that doesn't point to weird philosophical shit, I uh, don't know what would. It's kind of been mixed up with the God in the sky conception. Um, I kind of was raised with the God in the sky conception and then I went down the atheist materialist path for a while after my deconversion from sort of very conservative evangelical Christianity. And then over time, I came back in touch with what I now consider to be a much more sort of correct and nuanced understanding of God. Okay. But, I mean, are, are you are you like a Christian still, or is this some weird, you know, pantheist philosophical shit? Uh, I mean, it's it's some weird philosophical shit, at, at, at least. <laughs> I, I, these days, I believe in the legitimacy of a bunch of different faiths, 
one of the things that convinced me to believe in God again was realizing that the descriptions of God in the uh, Tao Te Ching, in Islam, in Christianity, in the Bhagavad Gita, um, in Zen scripture are really all the same. Um, emptiness in Buddhism is just like, it is what God is. Like if you actually look at the properties, the most fundamental properties that are being described, they are the same. Hmm. That's an interesting take. One day I'm going to find someone who disagrees with you there, but uh, for now I really have no commentary to make because, again, I do not read. <laughs> Could you elaborate then on those properties? You said all the fundamental properties are the same. Yeah. Um, so you have the property that there is something that is unchanging that there is something that is eternal. Um, you have the property that this is something that everything else takes its meaning from. Some theologians say that God is the ground of all being. Um, so God is sort of what enables existence as we commonly understand it to, to be a thing. Um, and then this is the same as, and then also like, so God is, is all powerful. When I say all powerful, most people or a lot of people are going to imagine it's like someone in the sky with a lot of power. But much more literal interpretation is that God is all power. Like God is what power is. Um, and I mean power in the broadest sense, in the sense of like love is powerful, not in the sense of like domination. Um, that, that which is powerful is God. Um, or no, that's... Mm, it's hard to talk about theology. Uh, another thing I would say, another thing that really caused me to think about God and I think more ultimately accurate terms was Aristotle. So Aristotle says that God is the unity of the good. So Aristotle has this idea that for every given, every given virtue can be perfectly unified with any other virtue. Um, there's sort of no ultimate contradiction between any virtue. It's like you can have them all. Um, and that this unified good is essentially God and that it draws all things in the universe towards itself. So things are fundamentally striving to be good, striving to be powerful in this truly, um, in this really wide open sense. I, I don't know if I'm helping clarify anything here. It's a... Uh, this doesn't make any sense to me. Complicated area. I mean, I, yeah, I hate to say I that. I have no idea what's but, going on. Uh, all right. Um, let me think for a moment. Um, so, uh, where do you even begin? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm at a loss for where to actually get started here. I definitely like welcome sort of questions to give me some place to start, and we also don't have to stay on this subject. I mean, well, I'm gonna be honest. I'm I could like uh, you know talk about this for hours and like you know, question the details of whatever the fuck you're talking about, but I think I'd get bored. So, uh, hmm. I don't really feel like doing that. 
Okay. Have you ever seen a Neon Genesis even? <laughs> uh, I've seen like the first like five episodes. Oh, I should God. watch the rest of it. It's definitely on my to do Oh yes. To -do list. Oh yes. You gotta yeah. watch it. It's uh. It's, it's intense. <laughs> it's really intense, dude. Oh, oh, indeed it is. You know what's weird? It's weird Japan has this, like, you go to school. I mean, every place has this. Every place has this, like, you're going to school and also magic shit is happening. Like, that's so bizarre to me. It's like, why is this kid what? going to school? Why is the protagonist in Neon Genesis? Like, that is not, that is not how he should be spending his time. They're like, we also I... want him to have a normal life. I think that's literally what they say. And I'm like, what? 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 No. It's terrible. I don't know, man. I think that's not an, in, entirely unreasonable, right? I mean, I think it's pretty dumb. In the case of Evangelion, it actually does make somewhat more sense. Somewhat more sense when you watch, uh, get further into the show, but I think it's still kind of dumb. I mean, I don't, I don't know um, how Evangelion is, is set up, but I feel like it's... I feel as though there's more desire than most people give credit for. Uh, for people to just inherently really want to live a normal life... Uh, like, like a lot of people, I feel, kind of reject the idea of throwing everything everything to the wayside and going on a wild, crazy adventure. Even though some people say that they do, a lot of people have a tendency to retreat and go back to normalcy, where they don't have to admit that anything is different and that they don't really have anything significant at stake. Um, with regard to Evangelion in particular, I, and I'll I'll say some things which don't really spoil anything because it's you know yeah, I mean, again, to get I'm not the first seen Evangelion. I don't know what's going on. But yeah, just without without spoiling anything, basically there's uh, these these kids, they're teenagers, uh, and they pilot Evangelions, which are like these basically giant like mecha yeah, things. I do know that, I do know, I have seen Pacific Rim and know that it's a ripoff of Evangelion. Yeah, well, Evangelion itself was like a, a commentary on a lot of earlier mecha anime, but anyhow, that's beside gotcha. the point. There are these these teenage kids that are Evangelion pilots, and basically they are like play a very critical role in saving the world, um, and they get sent to school, and as far as I can tell, none of them like really enjoy school or like have a good time there or anything, um, but they ha they're basically forced to go to school anyways by their like their guardians and their their bosses uh, at the organization that runs the Evangelions. Oh, okay, sorry. So the the people who are Fighting the aliens are going to school as well. Correct. Okay, yeah, and that's a little weird. I can't help but think, like, one, it's kind of a silly, like, thing from, like, a strategic perspective. Like, wouldn't it make more sense to have to, like, for them to spend most of their time in the facilities that they're, like, you know, on call and if an emergency comes up so they don't have to, you know, commute from school if there's an emergency? And two, if I were in that situation... I wouldn't want to go, be going to school. I'd want to be spending my spare time either, like, training or, like, you know, enjoying my life. I wouldn't want to have to shoulder the burden of, like, piloting an Evangelion and also have to fucking go to school. Yeah, it's that like, uh, you know, you're, you're like, you just beat, you know, some fucking alien the other night and then it's like there's a test tomorrow morning. There's, like, a final... Shinji, you haven't finished your homework yet. <laughs> yeah, like that's like that's bullshit. Yeah, I think I I agree. I I heard this really. I heard this kind of almost horrifying idea that like, uh, 
because Japanese society is, is messed up in a few ways, it's like school was one of the last, like, it was like a very positive social environment for a lot of people that they remember, remember fondly because there was like a lot of socializing happening during school. So people feel nostalgic for school. And so school is always like included in all of these animes as like, you know, the people are like saving the world or like whatever. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the escapist fantasy for Japanese people is being in school again. <laughs> You're being in school and, and also it's, it's magical at the same time. Which, which, you know, to be fair, that's like Harry Potter also. It's school, but it's magical. Wow, that is bleak. Uh, that is fucking bleak. Yeah, I, it is. It, I, yeah, it's, it's pretty bleak. Uh, I think a lot of people, like, they're, they really crave, like, sort of genuine education. I think that, like, 80% of all the escapist fantasy is, like, it's school, but it's meaningful. I think this is, like, Harry Potter. It's even, Wait, like, the Hunger no, 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 Games no, no, no. to an, ex- an extent. I, I disagree. Like, I, dis- I disagree. You're getting that. training. You're getting the... training that you really want. Yeah, go on. I think that the reason that it's that, that those things are meaningful to people is not because of the education, but because that because those places force people to interact with each other right it like puts people together and they can't really go anywhere right so that right so you you kind of forced to interact you have like this community that establishes itself and i think that people crave those communities a hell of a lot and they do it specifically in places like japan and britain and those kind of areas um because they have such um how do I say it? In a non-communal society, there's a huge emphasis on go out and do your own thing, work, and then maybe find like one or two people to live your life with. But other than that, you know, there's nothing. There's no like Hispanic ideal of like a bigger, greater family or something. And I think that's what causes, I think that that's what people are craving. The desire to be with like a large community that they can uh, go through shared experiences with. I, I definitely agree that they are craving that, but I think another thing that is emphasized in the fantasy is that you are getting to play some role in the world, or you are getting trained to play some role in the world. I see, I see. trained to be like an aurer, or like a lawyer, except it's a magical lawyer, and therefore like not lame, right? You, you, you'll get to do something real. Um, I think that there's a, a sense, I think kids have a sense, and have for a while, that like the jobs they're getting trained for are kind of bullshit and they want like non-bullshit jobs or roles in their society and i think a lot of the magical fantasy stuff is like oriented towards okay that, so, so, that so they're, they're being put into jobs that are actually meaningful in these fantasies yeah, uh, is what you're saying. So, 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 i see so i think that's the, okay, no, that's I can the totally twin agree thing that. that the twin thing in all of these fantasies it's like you're right it's like it you're you're being forced into communal situations. So I'm thinking of Code Geass, which I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen. Never seen it. Um, no. But in Code Geass, I'm, it's I like, have not seen a single anime. Fair warning. <laughs> uh, it's impressive. It's an anime. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so it's like there's like this genius kid in Code Geass who's like running a revolution against the evil empire. And he's also going to school. And so it's like the school in the show forces him into like these social situations and like romantic hijinks and like him having to solve social problems. And, and like otherwise he's like kind of a, you know, sad boy, loner type. Um, and so I think it's like the school element of it is forcing people. In, it's like it has this thing of like you have to, do, to deal with social stuff, 
which also comes up in like Harry Potter. It even comes up in something like the Hunger Games where it's like they're all training together. And so as a result, the social stuff like happens. Um, but on the, uh, on the flip side at the same time, uh, it's like you're also being prepared for some role, for some destiny. Like you have something to do that is fundamentally significant. <laughs> what the hell is this? Yeah, so I have I have show I have shared in chat um, an old an old uh, argument from 4chan, which I find very interesting. Um, I don't know if I want to like read the whole thing out, but um, I th- I think basically the idea is that Harry Potter doesn't believe in anything, and that his his career ambition is is like in in a wizarding world that's like very clearly like got all of these problems his highest ambition is to basically just become an or like just become a cop and help reinforce the status quo um and i think it's i don't know man harry potter he's kind of a lame guy i feel like the character there is just a self-insert i feel like that's kind of obvious though right harry potter's got no conviction he's got no real personality other than i'm gonna do what's good he's just yeah, I think Hermione was always the best character in Harry Potter. I I don't remember a goddamn thing about Harry Potter. <laughs> Probably uh, Hermione and uh, Neville. Neville was legitimately cool. <laughs> um. Oh yeah, Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. Unironically, I really love it. I think it's really good. I think it's better than the original. I think Fight it's me. I think it's really funny. I I have read it a couple times. It's funny it, too. I find it utterly hilarious. I I recommend it primarily as a comedy. Like it's where I'm at. Cool. Um. Shit. Okay, I'm gonna look through my questions. Um. <laughs> so I think my plan was to ask Vogelfrey about all of his weird philosophical shit, but I think what's probably going to happen is that he's going to give some, like, vague answers that don't make sense, and then he's going to be, like, just kind of, like, puzzled and, like, annoyed. That, that was only and I'm one not time. To, like, we, should, we should give it another chance. It's happened several times, Okay, actually. hold on. Before several that, times. I have, I have oh, shit. I've got a question here. Prince Vogelfrey, what do you think that individual people are lacking the most that they should get in, girlfriends uh, in a in a uh, in a like a, a virtue like yeah. right in like what virtue or what sort of like concept right like are they lacking family direction purpose uh meth um what <laughs> what do the, what do these people need to be more fulfilled to, to have better lives uh, so the crass answer is balls. Uh, the, what, <laughs> I the, love that. The way that Nietzsche says it is that it is not your sin that cries unto heaven. It is your very sparingness in sin. What he means by that is that people are like containing themselves in a bad way. Like they're like sort of like arrogantly suppressing their own identity. Does that make sense as a concept? Ooh, yes. I like this. I like this. Yes. 
Yes, she agrees with you very much. Yeah, there's this uh, bit of the uh, there's this thing called the Book of Sirach. The Book of Sirach is like included as part of the Bible by some people, but not by other people. Um, and in it, it has this line, which is that there's this there's a shame that leads to death, and there's a shame that leads to life. And kind of the implication is that, is that the shame that leads to death is one where you kind of believe that you know how you should like suppress yourself and punish yourself. You're like, I'm sinful. And therefore, like, I'm going to punish. It's like, no, you, you don't you don't know like how bad or how good you are. And as a result, you need to feel open towards life. You need to feel. Um, yeah, you, you, you need to to let yourself shine, so to speak. Um and yeah, it's like don't don't compress yourself out of the arrogance that you believe you know how you should be presented to the world. Um, Interesting. Okay, so you're suggesting that most people don't are not their best selves because they don't allow themselves to be their best selves. They could they they, oppre- they what's the re- repress the, the their true selves because they're why yeah are they it's doing that? well so um imagine that you have a part of you that is bad. I would say sinful, you know, you, you don't feel good about this part um, of yourself. And sure. then as a result, you do some like mental shit to like layer over it and keep it down. But that mental shit itself can be bad, right? So it's like you are, a, you, you have this part of yourself that is bad and then you push it down. But the way you push it down actually like hurts your overall mental structure, your psychology, it makes yourself, you feel bad about yourself as a totality. Um, so there's this line from the, uh, from, from a Sufi poem, which says to avoid sin uh, is a sin. And so there's this idea, which is like, that's a, it's a weird concept, right? But it's like, the idea is, is that you can avoid doing bad things for really bad reasons and in a really bad way. And I think a lot of people have parts of themselves that like are antisocial, are violent, are like massively creative, but also massively disruptive. And they have just like totally bottled these things up inside of themselves. But that bottling up is itself a kind of like arrogance, um, as I've said. Okay, so people try to people try to what's fuck what's the what's the word I'm blanking on vocabulary repress silence suppress, yeah. The, yeah. yeah yeah thank you suppress um, negative parts of themselves and in doing so they end up suppressing in a sense themselves as a whole and because of that they're all kind of muted am I am I getting to the point here yeah, they, they, that's exactly right. Oh, interesting. I really I, okay. That's very interesting. I kind of like. You know, I can certainly see that. I think that's decent insight. Thank you. Okay, that's the um, end of my question. I think if I read like a book or something where a character did this, and there was like a, a, a robust example that helped me understand how this worked, I would rock it. But uh, as of right now, yeah, I don't. I'm going to go ahead and, and say that you are once again being vague and not making I can, sense. Okay. So, I mean, I can try Robo and give I don't know if you know this. my own he, life. Okay. If She'll only help. interacts with books. He only uh, thinks through books. 
No, no, go ahead, Vogelfrey. <laughs> so, mm, what is a good? Uh, I I am like on the whole, from my own internal perspective, a very very angry person. Um, I'm angry a lot of the time, uh, and I don't necessarily think that I come across that way, but like it's there. And then that anger is not always calibrated as in I can tell that I am often going to be like way too angry at someone if I like really let myself go. But because I don't let the anger out at all, I end up like less motivated, like less creative. It's like I it's like I'm having to constantly expend energy to like not be angry, right? And so often if I let myself be angry and I like, I lash out or I like do like X angry, angry thing, then afterwards I end up feeling just better overall because there's no longer this thing that I'm constantly suppressing. So it, it, it is often an act of arrogance on my part to say that because th- that suppressing my anger is better overall than like actually kind of letting myself go because letting myself go does generally like I think that the anger is going to cause some kind of harm in the world but it also allows me to do a bunch of other like good stuff because I'm being less repressed as a whole are you suppressing your anger right now am I suppressing my anger a little bit yeah (laughs) okay my my intuition um, is that if you were you might be able to kind of introspect at that anger and kind of like in- interrogate, like, you know, wh- where is it coming from? Why is it there? And potentially kind of resolve it or unravel it. Um, or, I mean, or reformulate it, maybe. I've definitely tried that. I, like, I, I have a lot of introspection <laughs> under my belt. Um, you're probably right. But, like, but Vogelfrey, have you done acid? <laughs> uh, I have once. I would like to do it again soon. Um, oh, okay. But, yeah. It was good. It was good when I did it. I enjoyed it. Yep. Well, anyways, human psyche is a fucked up place. What are we going to do with ourselves? You know, it's just... Uh, you know, does anyone really know themselves? Do we really know how to fix our problems? It's it's a real, it's a real shit show out there, boys. It's... Uh, it's a mess. Yeah, you don't even have to worry about it. Just do whatever, you know? <laughs> In fact, I would go so far as to say you shouldn't even worry about worrying about it. It's like if you're worrying about it, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the worrying about it. <laughs> I kind of I kind of feel Go, please go. I feel like running, a, for me at least, running away from myself or trying to ignore what's really happening inside my mind is just like a recipe for disaster. And that the, the only way I ever make any progress is if I actually think about what's going on and do my best to, to, to puzzle that out. Um, because just like ignoring things or keeping them under the surface is a very good way to just kind of... Uh, remain ignorant of those problems 
almost. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's, uh, that's the suppression again that I was kind of trying to talk about. It's like I think people by default. I don't even I. For me though, I don't even expend energy to suppress anything. I just ignore it, and I have to I have to make an effort to to actually look at it. So I like I that what you're saying makes sense to me, but I I will say I believe that by default, if you have something and it is being suppressed, there is some amount of it, like passive, constant energy expenditure being used to keep it under to like to keep it down because it it want that part of your mind will want to express itself naturally the mind will naturally want to relate things to the rest of itself so it's like if you manage to pull off a layer of suppression your energy level will just bump up like you'll like find that you have more energy because you're no longer kind of passively invested in like you know uh uh the suppression of guerrilla warfare inside of your own mind I think I've definitely there have definitely been times where I think I've I felt like I've made like a breakthrough and afterwards it just kind of made me feel like really exuberant and like lighter almost. Um like just the everyday like existing and doing things was just easier. Uh, anyhow, um we did actually if you guys are interested in this, um, a while ago I put out a thing on Twitter asking people if they had any questions they wanted us to talk about, and I actually got a DM from someone, uh, this was like for the first episode, and I totally forgot about it, but if you'd like, we could discuss some of those questions. Sounds good. I'm down. All right. I have no idea if any of us are going to have anything intelligent to say about this. How do you see the future of decentralized science and production over the next hundred years evolving? Uh, yeah. Uh. The realism the realism of magical practices in different contexts and the future of U.S. society in the wake of deeper and deeper conversational isolation between different ideological groups. Um, could you repeat the question? How do you see... Well, I guess it's three questions. How do you see the future of decentralized science and production uh, evolving over the next hundred years? Look, man, we're, we're in for a wild ride. That's my answer to all of these questions. Uh, the second one, if That's I was pretty understanding reasonable. that right. It's like... I, you should just be in for a wild ride. Like, the normal structures are going down. They're plummeting into oblivion. And then, like, it's going to be the Wild West in, like, every respect uh, soon enough. What are we discussing when we talk about decentralized science? What I Presumably the- stuff that doesn't take place primarily in the framework of, you know universities and people applying for grants and publishing those in, in specific papers, kind of the institutionalized way of I doing see. things. I see. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is a topic I know nothing about. See, I, this person, I got these questions before we aired our first episode. So I think this person was imagining that we were like serious people who like knew things. 
and not just ah that's their first you know, mistake full of shit yeah so um dear commenter who i'm i presume wants to remain anonymous uh, we tried our best we've we you know but uh, these are not the questions you should be asking us shit. well now i'm i'm interested what the hell is decentralized science like what what's even happening there how do you get the money for that I mean, the way you would back in the day, which is that random eccentric billionaires fund your projects, which is that that is what my last yeah, job I was, guess. was, was sort of decentralized psychology research because Peter Thiel throws Ooh. money around. So it's like this sort of thing exists, you, wanna, you know, you want to talk about that a little bit? That seems interesting. Yeah. What no. was that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I used to be employed as a, I don't know, I'm not even sure what you would say let's say generalized humanities researcher like sociology and psychology by a think tank that was funded by Peter Thiel that was stuffed full of psychology, which like, like, like non-normal like psychology and like history researchers. Uh, like, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what to, I'm not sure how to categorize it in normal terms. I would say the whole thing, the psyche. I don't know, I know man. It kind of sounds like you were just making shit up to get money from Peter Thiel. <laughs> uh, making shit up in a useful way, like maybe. <laughs> He's a smart guy. He's not. You, 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 you can't just sort of like wave your hands and like make your like uh, diplomacy bluff roll and get money from him. Uh, All right, well, Vogelfrey, tell me, yeah. tell me about what you learned. Uh, what you, was like, what happened with the psyche? Is it real? What was going on with it? <laughs> All right, Does well, it exist? I'll try to explain. It... I'll try to explain okay. one thing I learned, and acid is probably going words. to accuse me. Is going to accuse me of being vague again, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best. Okay. So, one of the things that I think was super interesting was. And this was not the terminology we used, but sort of a, an idea of anthropomorphic reasoning. So, you get, are you guys familiar with this concept at all? No. No. Okay. But I'm pretty sure I could. Um, are you talking about like reasoning about things from a specifically human perspective? No, no, no. Sorry, I think I'm. I think anthropomorphic is the wrong phrase. Anthropic. That's the one I want. Anthropic. Uh, so the idea, the basic idea that you'll encounter in a bunch of different psychological theories, it shows up in a number of different places, but, um, there's an idea of, uh, essentially that the mind is reasoning for the contexts where it like continues to exist in some form. And that that's part of what it does, uh, naturally. So, okay. It, sorry, it gives reasons to continue existing. Uh, it, it it is it is reasoning for the worlds in which it will continue existing. So, let, to, to sort of like I don't know, try to find some place to ground it out in. Hmm? Imagine that we're planning, we're like running a, a war campaign, right? We're at war with someone, and we want to win the war. Sure. You could posit that we can't win the war, but that's just obviously not useful from our position. So we are we are only going to plan for the worlds in which we win the war, right? Like that's always the worlds you plan for. 
the worlds you're going to win. Like, you know, a meteor could strike the Earth tomorrow and kill all of us, but that's literally not worth thinking about because you can't do anything with it. And this is the idea of reasoning, reasoning anthropically, is that you reason towards the worlds in which you're going to win in some sense. Okay. I can understand that, sure. Yeah. What is the research uh, part of this? Well, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Uh, so to try and ground the whole kind of frame of idea out. Um, if you imagine that people are reasoning anthropically naturally, so that's just something that the mind does, like you don't need to add any special components to it, um, then you're going to, it's going to be like they're, uh, they're going to look at what the powers in the world are, are doing and interpret them in a way where those powers aren't going to like destroy them essentially. So this essentially dovetails into Stockholm syndrome. So it's like, why do people interpret their kidnappers as benevolent? And the answer is, is because the kidnappers have power over them. And so you're planning for the worlds in which you survive or things work out well. And so if your interpretation of the world is that your survival is dependent on the actions of someone else or some other entity, you will tend to interpret that entity as good. Am I making sense so far? I said what? Um, uh, I can sort of see that. Yeah, I mean, a, a good example for is, is there's this question libertarian types often ask, which is like, why do people think that the government is good? Like, why do they not view it with suspicion and distrust? Um, and I think that the answer is this, is that essentially in a lot of cases when the government is not actually functional, I think rarely, occasionally it is, but when it's not functional... But they, they view their lives as too bound up in it. And so they have to interpret it as like reasonable or at least passive in some sense. Um, all right. You guys ready for the, for the trippy part? Steal okay. yourselves okay. for trippiness. All right. So the idea here is that, again, this is not like an extra procedure of the mind. This is something that the mind does by default. Have you guys ever heard of this thing where like a deer or like prey animals will go limp in the mouths of a predator like they'll just like go totally limp when like the predator has yeah. them yeah 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 so the idea is is that that is stockholm syndrome and its maximum extent that the deer thinks of itself as being in a world where it's like not about to get eaten and that this current situation that it's in is is like fine that like the deer is like accepting its fate, but that the moment there's any opportunity like to, to, to envision a different world, the deer will sort of switch into viewing that, that uh, viewing the world differently and like switch back to, to viewing the, the predator as a threat. And in fact, there are, there are instances of people being, you know, like gotten by, get, by, by big cats and being dragged off, right? And they describe themselves as being like very, very calm and sort of like a very like this is fine kind of attitude um, because their, their, you know, quote unquote survival instincts like overrid their sense of danger um, or like 
sense of like I, I don't know total freaked outness. Okay, I'm interested digging digging into that 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 last example. Could you could you see? Because if I if I were to imagine that at that point, my it's just intuitively what I would imagine is the thought process there is something along the lines of well I can't really do anything I might as well not panic I might as well just you know go along with this just kind of spend my last few moments clear-headed N- not actually you know being okay with it just I suppose saying it is what it is is that yeah well is that is that how it would be so or there's there's a there difference else? there's a difference between telling yourself something and something actually being in your mind right um no no of course of course and so the idea here is not necessarily that you would tell yourself it is what it is but that that would actually be the case in your mind in a sort of like yeah yes calm acceptance that, of what, what is happening and that this calm existence exists because of this particular way that the mind in theory um actually functions Okay, so it's all subconscious, so they don't. Yeah, right? or at least initially okay, subconscious. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, I think I'm understanding. Okay, that that's very interesting. Thank you, thank you for sharing about your. Uh, unless uh, Shill has anything they would like to question, uh, he would like to question or. Look into. Um, I'll let you go for now. Although I do have some <laughs> some interesting something interesting to add on to this. Um, a while back, I was reading a newsletter from uh, Alexa Guzzi, uh, who quotes this book uh, about the Holocaust, and um, I'll, just, I'll just read you just read you a short quote, which you know I think you might recognize. Prisoners, in, prisoners at Auschwitz were already doomed. Rebellion could have saved either the life they were going to lose anywhere or the lives of others. When Lengiel and many other prisoners were selected to be sent to the gas chambers, they did not try to break away, as she successfully did. Worse, the first time she tried it, some of the fellow prisoners selected with her for the gas chambers called the supervisors, telling them that Lengiel was trying to get away. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of other stuff here, but... Um, do, 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 do. Okay, so there there were also uh, work groups organized from death camp prisoners who basically they would they would work and then they would be killed. Uh, the first task of every new Sonder commando was to cremate the corpses of the preceding commando, exterminated just a few hours before. I recommend to the reader speculation why that the twelfth commander why the twelfth uh, Sonder commander revolted, the thirteenth went quietly to its death without opposition. In this single revolt of the 12th Sonder Commando, 70 SS were killed, including one commissioned officer and 17 non-commissioned officers. One of the crematoria was totally destroyed and another severely damaged. True, all 853 prisoners of the commando died, but this proves that a position in the Sonder Commando gave prisoners a chance of about 10 to 1 to destroy the SS, a higher ratio than existed in the ordinary concentration camp. The one Sonder Commando that revolted and took such a heavy toll on the enemy did not die much differently than all the other Sonder Commandos. Why then, why did millions walk quietly without resistance to their death when right before them were examples such as this commander that managed to destroy and damage its own death chambers and kill 10% of their own number in SS? I think that's just something fun to think about. I think that's very relevant. 
I think you've read this to me before. Um, yes. I really do like it. Yeah. Vogelfrey, do you have anything to say about that? I mean, for me, I kind of think about the evolution of both the modern like ideals of revolution and also the ideals of like the warrior aristocracy. So the, the idea of rights, right, goes back to the warrior aristocracy where they were sort of making this, this sort of agree, agreement or ideal among themselves of like, if the, you know, the king or like the emperor messes with one of us, then we're all just going to like pre-commit to like waging like an eternal war against them. And then eventually this ideal spread to the population at large of like, uh, of freedom or death, essentially. Um, and I, I think that that is, for me, it's like, how do you, how do you have ideals that kind of almost prevent this from happening in the first place? Um, how do you be such that you do not go quietly to your death is something I think about like a lot. I think, though, if the situation of, like Magna Carta, for instance, where the nobles decide they're, they're fed up with the king and they, you know, they don't like what he's doing, like, if they all get together, they, they actually have the power to overthrow the king and guarantee their own rights. Um, that's not the case in a lot of other situations, and I don't really, I don't, I don't know that most people would be willing to fight if they know that they're going to die. But there's this question of what are you capable of if your whole population is willing to die, right? Um, like, if you if you have that level of organization. Yeah, well, I mean, in that situation, hmm. you can do a hell of a lot, I suppose, is the simple, is, is the simple answer, right? There's... If everybody really is willing to commit life or death to uh, a cause, then well, shit, I don't know. There's this movie difficult for somebody to. Hmm? Yeah, there's a movie. I think it's called Resistance, but I'm not sure. But there's a couple different movies about Jewish armed resistance groups to the Nazi regime, and they're very interesting and very inspiring because they kind of highlight the people who actually got people together to enter into armed revolt and like how kind of different their attitudes were um, to a lot of the other people around them. All right. Uh, I've been drinking way too many fluids. I have to use the bathroom again. So. <laughs> back. I told you I uh, threw my back out about two days ago so I haven't been able to exercise mm -hmm. I, I pulled a muscle so I've just been sitting here uh, in my room not really doing anything it's it's sucked man I want to like go out hiking and go out exercising I mean I just, can I you still sun. like walk and stuff yes it's okay it's it's not it's not at all debilitating right however I mean I understand I why you wouldn't want to you know use muscles in your back but could you yeah. not just walk around places 
I mean, I can, and like simple walks are not terrible, but when I walk around, I can feel the muscle being used in a manner that mm. like is not conductive to it healing. So I'm just sitting I here, see. right? It's like, again, it's not debilitating in any manner. I can just even exercise, right? Like I can feel that I'm not supposed to be doing it, but I can. It's not a problem. Mm. Um, it's just, I don't know. I want to get it healed up incredibly quickly so that I can go back to exercising and uh, living a full life. So I'm just, mm. I'm just here, you know, sitting. I, um, I finally well, you could always sit outside and read a book if you don't want to be sitting in your room all the time. You yeah, know? I mean that's true. No, I mean, I've, yeah, that's that that's a fair point. I don't I don't really have. I need to figure out what books to read. I need to. What I need to do is just finish up uh, at Mountains of Madden at the Mountains of Madness because I've I've gotten rather bored. I've come to a, a very like a slow spot in there, um, and I need to just push through it and finish it. I've noticed Lovecraft got can be a little slow sometimes. <laughs> Lovecraft can be incredibly slow and droning, depending on what he's talking about. Of course, he can also be an incredible writer, but yeah, I don't know. One thing that we need to convince uh, Kersey to do is to, to read Lovecraft out loud because he's very, very good at that in particular. Who, who's Kersey? <laughs> uh, he's another he Twitter. Kersey. He's another Twitter Gotcha. Okay. My, Michael Kersey. Yeah. You can look him up. Yeah. He's pretty cool. Pretty hot too, actually. Oh yeah, it's true. He's got a great voice. Oh yeah. Do you ever think about men, Vogel Frey? Think about men, not in that yeah. way. Not in that Ooh. way. You're missing out. <laughs> You're missing out. I mean, oh, how do you think about women? Me? Women are so much to think about already in that way. <laughs> it's a lot. Like you got to really specialize, you know, you can't branch out too much. Oh, you can absolutely branch out. You know, you just, <laughs> I want it all. I want the world. Yeah, but you can't Thinking have it. Men, That's Prince the Vogel problem. What are, I mean, I'm one. It's cool. I love being a man. Just absolutely adore it. I was thinking recently about like gender stuff and like people who per- who prefer less gender stuff. And I had this realization, which is that being gendered is like a drug. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation, perhaps a romantic relationship, where you are being very strongly gendered, maybe more so than usual, and you are gendering the other person so much more than like like more than usual. Um, and I was like, wow, this is like a drug. And that actually made me empathize with people who prefer less of that more because it's like they're avoiding a particular kind of intensity and modernity has a lot of intensities already in it already. So like, yeah, maybe it, it makes sense to not want to be drugged up in this particular way. Um, and I think if you can kind of examine uh, quote unquote baseline human experience, it's like gender is an intensity on top of that. That is like quite trippy. Like it's actually like weird and bizarre and uh, very intense. Yeah, okay. Uh, no, I, I, definitely I understand, understand what you're referring to there. Yeah, that's, that's something I've experienced. 
that's one of the things I think about men. Yeah. Alright. Okay. No, no, I, li- I like that answer. Um, completely unrelated question. Who's your favorite author? Who's my uh, Nietzsche? Easy. No doubt. Nietzsche changed my life when I was 19. I was like very heavily depressed and his worldview broke my very heavy depression. Um, and like Man, lift, have to lifted, those, lifted those clouds. Um, he is, yeah, I think he's just fantastic. I really can't praise him high, highly enough. Okay. Any particular works? Uh, I I always go through this process, which is like, it different people have good, uh, good starting points. I mean, I've read essentially his entire corpus. Uh, I might recommend the gay science as a good place to start for most people. The what science? The gay science, as in the mirthful oh, science. I gotta read that. Which oh, I think yeah. is a more a more accurate translation. But yeah. I definitely got to read that. <laughs> okay. Uh, Interesting. I, I think to perhaps try try to attempt to... Um, so, you know, when I was in my later teens, I had deconverted from evangelical Christianity and that had stripped a lot of the, like, hope and directionality out of my life. And I had become, yeah, like, quite cynical in some ways. Um and it was very easy to be cynical in a kind of unchecked way because of my intelligence. Because I could have this idea in my mind of like, oh, other people can't see how bad the world really is, right? Um, <laughs> if only you knew how bad it really is. Yeah. And then Nietzsche does this thing, uh, which is like a lot of his works are structured so that he describes a lot of real badness in the world in this very real kind of cynical way that is like more intense than like you can really like pro- could ever have produced yourself it's like however however cynical you think you are capable of being Nietzsche was more cynical um but then he always turns it back around he always takes that feeling of cynicalness and pulls it back around to like you can still live life you can still have hope you can find beauty even in the darkest circumstances and that takes away any kind of justification that you might have for yourself like ah like like the world is bad and i can see how truly bad it is it's like no like Nietzsche sees the worst aspects of the world even more than you do and he's like still ultimately someone who's very hopeful and very interested in, in beauty and what is truly good Okay, you convinced me to reach Nietzsche. Read Nietzsche. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm Nietzsche Schill, uh, so that's <laughs> great. I respect that. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, I I appreciate the um the recommendation there. That that does sound very interesting. Nietzsche's impact on like modern philosophy is also just like outrageous. It's like. Um, modern anarchism, modern fascism, even like Zionism, like the early founders of like basically like every major extant political ideology were all like influenced by Nietzsche in one way or, or another. Um, his, he's useful not only in sort of transforming yourself, but also just 
he his his impact has been like truly truly ridiculous um in the world at large i'm sure then when i read nietzsche you know he'll just completely support my political views then <laughs> I, obvious. I mean, that is that's that's one way of reading him uh yeah People do manage to do that. <laughs> All right. So, um, well, Prince Vogelfrey, do you have anything you would like to talk about? Any anything you are particularly fascinated in, in delving into, in thinking about, in uh, posing? Hmm. I don't know. You I can say like no. Hit, no is an okay answer. We've hit a lot of this stuff already. Uh, I'm very interested in how people can how people can be more connected to each other, like in modern conditions, which is like why I'm on this podcast and why I'm on Twitter. Um, hmm. I see. I think one of the best ways to bond with people is to go through. Um, trials and tribulations together be it physical or mental i think that right there is, <laughs> is probably the best way to bond with people and i've experienced it uh both mentally and physically right going going through each trial and i think i think there's there's when when people talk about brotherhood right the idea of of forming a brotherhood uh amongst men i feel like a lot of people nowadays don't really fully understand what it means Right, they understand the idea of yeah, guys get together and bond, right? But their idea of that is guys getting together and drinking, <laughs> and yeah. right, yeah, right, yeah, and guys yeah, yeah. getting together and playing D and D or yeah, video games and whatnot. They kind of miss out that they fundamentally don't really understand how intensely people can bond. Um, yeah, when so, when they're thrown into those incredible positions, yeah. There's only there's only one way to get a bond like that. And that's gay sex. <laughs> so there used to be I mean actually still is in Germany today do you know how villains in a lot of movies sometimes have a scar like over their eye yeah. like across yeah, the eye Yeah. Mm -hmm. so that comes from an old German tradition of dueling, dueling fraternities where what they would do is to get initiated into this fraternity you would essentially wear like goggles and like you know like eye protection and then you would slash at each other's faces and like not be allowed to retreat so it's sort of like you each have a saber you like take one step closer to the other person and you slash at their face and this was a way of ritually scarring members of the fraternity while they were you know being in inducted into it and that's where the scar across the eye comes from and that's what i always think of when i think of men sort of bonding together um. that's that's very interesting yeah but my um my overarching you know idea there is we all have to go to war we should have like a forever war going so that everybody all the guys can bond together what you get me yeah <laughs> Right, no, that's right. A we, find, idea. we find a country. We find very, a country to go to war with, um, very and then we just continuously storm. fight them. Yeah, very exactly. storm, storm of steel of you. Um, <laughs> I feel um, the, the, that that way. There's the there's no lack of bonding. 
as we as we talk, as we talk about this. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can like just you can join the army and like go to Afghanistan or whatever. Like they're never going to leave Afghanistan. They're never going to like turn turn away recruits that like are are you know not not disabled. Uh, I don't, I, they probably can even find jobs for disabled people. You know, know, that's something I've Anyhow. always found incredibly interesting. And um, yet, most people don't join the army, so therefore you're wrong. Well, I think that, as as I said, I think the issue there is people don't really understand what that kind of mutual community and uh, bonding can do for people. Right? I think that there's such a difference, right? Like, there's... In... in and I'm... I'm it's been a while since I've, I've really thought about this, so forgive me, I'm going to butcher some of the numbers. Um, but as, as you probably know, the rates of PTSD in the U.S. Army specifically are incredibly high. Right? Yes. Um, and if you look at some place like the Israeli Army, the rates of PTSD, despite the fact that they usually the threat of danger is much more imminent to them, the PTSD rates are way lower. Um, I can send you the TED talk. I mean, do they re- do they really have the same amount of danger though? Because like, if you if you like, if you join the army and you're like deployed in the U.S., like you're probably going to go to an actual war zone. The Israeli army, a lot of what they're doing is just like defensive stuff. Like, uh, I've I there was I, I, I there was a guy on Twitter who who was you know grew up in Israel, so he was drafted, and the way he described his experience was that he was uh, he just spent several years like manning a guard post on the border with Egypt just not doing anything <laughs> I'm, and it I'm doesn't seem like that would be the kind of thing that uh, I, I'm very certain that there's a lot of not doing anything in the American army like too like a lot of people aren't That's even fair. deployed my brother wasn't even deployed and even people who are deployed sit in some base that you know the Taliban most or people do not see combat it's just never going to attack um or you're you're not even deployed. You know you're deployed in uh, some country that's like neighboring to the war zone, but not in the war zone itself. You're deployed to a base in Pakistan or Oman or like whatever. Um, yeah, exactly. But I I do think a lot of it has to do with uh, the amount of like cultural acceptance or like cultural yes. understanding of the activity that is going on. Where I that is so, where I was going. What one one trippy story I have heard uh, is I have a number of Jewish friends and they do you know birthright they go to Israel um, they like travel there and the Israeli government is very intent on them mixing with the culture because they really want people to move to Israel who are Jewish um, and there's this thing that they've described to me which is that a lot of Jewish women are spe- specifically try to date men who have been in combat or are in combat, like, proximate roles. I think that is just a wildly different cultural experience of being, like, combat is a thing that, like, happens enough, that could happen enough, that um, it, it has that kind of effect. Whereas, comparatively with a lot of, like, U.S. veteran stories, I've heard so many stories of people, um, you know, feeling very isolated because no one has an idea of what they've been through. No one has an idea of like sort of like the feelings it produced and they end up feeling like very isolated because of their um, service. 
Yeah, that's that is kind of the that I mean that's pretty much exactly the point that I'm I was going through that that, that I was I was leading up to because and I'm not suggesting we obviously do it but is you know when you're in Israel there's universal conscription right both men and women everybody has an understanding of what it's like to be in the military and because of that there's inc- there's very low uh, social isolation when you return from that everybody knows what you've been through and everybody understands the amount of bonding that you do with the people that you've gone into combat with or even just you know spent however many years um around with right because you know you get a, you get assigned to a squad and even if you're not in combat you're with those people for however many years um day in and day out right you sleep in the, the barracks with them sometimes right um and in the u.s that's just not a thing you go back and most people have no idea right and they a lot of them can't fundamentally understand the amount of bonding that can happen in those circumstances. And I think it's, I mean, I think that's probably a bad thing, but I don't really have a fix. Uh, but I, you mm. know, in, in, in more, I guess, in less productive terms, I just think it's a very interesting thing to think about uh, and something good to be aware of combat sports gives you like a little bit of this um i've done a lot of a lot of um medieval armored combat uh which i hasten to distinguish from from larping because larping has this idea of like (laughs) it's like based around some like DD rule set i know the thing i'm describing is like full contact like beat the shit out of each other with wooden swords while you were worrying yeah yeah yeah. uh yeah i've seen videos and I, there's this very, you get, I don't know, you do get extraordinary bonding effects when you see people push to their limit, when you see people overcome hardship, um, even when you Absolutely. just like relax, relax with people after a hardship, like it's the best thing in the world. It's a total drug. I love it. I need, I need more of it in my life. Um, yeah, no, I, I did a bit of martial arts, um, back in the day and I've haven't, I haven't done so in a little while. And I need to get back into it. Um, story for another time. Um, but that's the experience that you described is pretty much exactly what I experienced, right? So we should start a <laughs> the, the, Twitter army. We need a we need a yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, we should all, we should all group up and beat each other up, right? You've just um, fight we should, fight we should, exactly. Yeah, that well, that, really? you ruin you ruined my gag. I was gonna like describe it in a really roundabout way, and then I was gonna be like, "We should call it Fight Club." <laughs> but now, but now you've just now you've just taken the punch out of the gag. So my oh, sorry. Oh, oh well, the yeah. gang reinvents it's, it's Fight okay. Club. I'm sure that like, every <laughs> third Twitter podcast is the gang reinvents Fight Club. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure. I'm sure this concept has been done a million and one times because I think the movie is actually really insightful, right? And I think it touches on those things really in, in a really interesting manner i think it has some very good points to it in that in that respect yeah i've i've heard that the author was like really depressed after the movie because they thought that the movie would actually like ignite the thing um. <laughs> <laughs> oh no people aren't actually fighting that's really depressing if you think about it imagine you have this like view of human nature that if people are are exposed to this ideal in an intense enough format that they'll just go out and do it and then they just don't and you're like but they like yeah, yeah. applaud it a lot they're like yeah like we want to do fight club but not really 
<laughs> I don't think any. I don't think most people are really aware of how much agency they truly have. I, I mean, they can just do most, Fight Club. That's just like totally... sure. No, 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 no. They can, but they can't. They look at that and they say, "Man, I wish I was in a position to do that." Right? Like, man, if only everything was very different. If only I had all the problems that I don't have, then I would go do that in an ideal world. But people don't seem to fully understand that the world that they inhabit is the only one that they're going to get and they need to everything that they want to do they can do in the world that they have or i should perhaps perhaps it's better to say stuff like that and everything that they should be thinking of uh, those realistic fantasies are things that they can do obviously you can't go participate in harry potter world but you can have a fight club well i mean you can we're just not supposed to talk about it with muggles (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've seen it's it's very interesting living because I've I've often lived in a um a very kind of upper middle class suburban area, uh, and it's always very interesting to see people talk about all of the stuff that they wish that they'd accomplished, right? All all of their like hopes and dreams and um motivational talks and then not do any of those things when really those things are much more achievable than they think. I don't know. Yeah, that's what's really wild about like the modern world and the internet is that like everything is at your fingertips. Like you can read anything, you can find detailed guides on almost any skill and it's really it like strips away some illusion of like the problem being opportunity rather than the problem being like more like fundamental or strange spiritual. Yeah. I think, I think there's, there's almost the, the problem of because there's just everything is there. You don't really want to do any of it. It's almost information overload. You're kind of caught in paralysis, right? Every, everything you could possibly think of doing is there, right? If you if you really wanted to, you could within a month go join, uh, you know, like the fuck who who are they, the Kurds, right? Yeah, there I was. Plenty, just there there, about there that. are plenty of Western yeah. people that right. They they could just get their shit together and join the Kurds. People do that, but obviously because that's now so available, because pretty much everything is available in just that manner, people have developed, I guess maybe a desensitization towards it and they end up not doing any of it. Yeah. This wraps back around to what I was talking about a little while ago with this like sense of there being too many possibilities, too many ways Mm -hmm. of being. Um, One of my earliest successful Twitter threads was talking about this idea that people have had too many experiences and it's like for any given experience, you're trying to make sense of what that means, but you end up with contradictory senses of like, what the world is or what things are about because you've had all of this like wildly kind of contradictory input. Um, And one commentator on that pointed out that like, this is something that is used in torture is essentially you feed people wildly different experiences so that their sense of agency breaks because they can't make sense of both of them. Um, Good cop, bad cop is the basic thing they do, but like, yeah, they, they do all of this kind of thing. And I, I think people are, exposed to stimuli that is like on wild ends of like 
what people would normally experience in the modern world. Like if you just think about the raw, like the the noise that is being pumped into your mind and the lights and the like different social experiences, <laughs> it's all totally wild. Like the modern world is like super bizarre compared to the past where most people were in a relatively limited cultural uh, context. So um, if I were to posture, I think that a lot of what, what I have seen, and I think it's, it's, I've kind of come to realize this in the past ha- half year or so, is that one of the main responses to seeing all of these different experiences and not really being able to, how do I say it, like make sense of them all, like fit them all into one thing, right? You know, there's so many ideal uh, th- ways of living with ideals that conflict with each other is uh, the, the main re- a very popular response is a feeling of constant cynicism, of overarching cynicism towards everything. And I think you can see that on websites like Twitter. If you go to bad areas of it, the very cynical <laughs> political areas. The bad um, neighborhoods. Yeah, exactly. Where the only really the, the only real response to anything is um just an overwhelming cynicism to anybody who posits positive ideas or tries to believe in something positive, um, it's rejected. And these people might have political ideas, but they're based a lot more on an opposition to something uh, outside of their group rather than something positive that they hold. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think it is much easier to define your freedom in a negative sense uh that you are free from something say the like cringy atheist thing right it's like you're free from a religion (laughs) the cringy communist thing you're free from capitalism and then one of the things nietzsche talks about is that he doesn't give a fuck what you're free from he wants to know what you are free for right what positive direction you're defining (laughs) in your life and i think that's just like yeah so it's like obviously correct that you should have some direction you are going and not just defining yourself in negation of some like other ideal. All right. Cool. Cool. Well, gentlemen, um, if you guys have, uh, nothing else you especially want to talk about. Uh, I probably am going to take a nap. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think, Principal I think we're afraid. Do you have anything else you would like to say? Don't don't think so. Uh, enjoy right. your nap. All right. right then in that we'll, case, we'll is yeah. everything that you dream. You. <laughs> it was a pleasure okay. meeting you. I had a great time talking. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm I'm glad you two got along so well. I knew you would, but I I didn't expect it to be to this extent. Um, it's uh, it's interesting, you know. It really makes you think. Anyhow, thank you very much for coming on, Vogelfrey. Um, and to our dear listeners, if you've gotten this far into what's probably going to be like a two-hour episode after it's edited down, congratulations. I guess I still don't understand why people enjoy this show. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back in some period of time, probably with another guest. Probably, who knows? Who knows? Bye. Bye. Later.